Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 19 of the History in Today podcast. And this week, we have a little bit of a special episode for you guys. So we are in the middle of uh, getting ready for finals. Our reading week is next week, and then finals are going to be the week after. So definitely a hectic time. So we decided this week we're going to ask you guys for questions because getting other people to do the work is a great thing. No, we all sent in some really interesting questions that we're really excited to sort of delve into. Um, we're kind of bookending um, the episode with some, like, more of, not like opinion questions, but like, they're historical events that like, Sam and I like, like personally like, care about or like, so it's going to be like, a variety of information coming from um, this episode, whether it be from, you know, our personal like historical events that we like to talk about um, or, um, you know, and then everything in between is just really varied. So it's really great. I'm, I'm excited. Yeah, it's going to be fun. So let's just uh, jump into the first question. So first question from Catherine Atkinson is, what is the historical event that you think is really cool but never get to talk about? So why don't you go first? No, I think you should go first. <laughs> okay. So mine, um, I thought about like a few like serious ones. Mine's a little out of left field because it's really kind of dumb. But frankly, like I, I just love it and I want to share it with the world. So I'm going to take you guys back really far, farther than we've ever been on this show, to 1618. <laughs> and in 1618, uh, which... You know, really the only important part about 1618, other than the fact that the Pilgrims were probably starting to think about coming to America, was um, that the, the Thirty Years' War started. And the Thirty Years' War was basically, like, the, the real, like, first world war. There were, you know, every country in Europe was, was somehow embroiled in it. Very religious conflict. It was the Protestants versus the Catholics. Um, the Holy Roman Empire was kind of... In its dying days. And um, so in 1618, you have, uh, you know, the, these two factions. Uh, and basically, there is this, the, home, the Holy Roman Empire is Ferdinand. And in Bohemia, which would later become Czechoslovakia, I think. I am absolutely... I am not good with geography, but in Bohemia, the country at the time, um, I think it's currently the Czech Republic now, uh, there was a, a, a big problem as to whether or not, you know, it would be Protestant land or it would be Catholic land. And this brings us to our event, which was the, defren the defenestration of Prague. Now, it's also referred to as the second defenestration of Prague, which I'll get to. So... The word defenestration, which is probably my favorite word in the English language, means to throw out of a window. So to defenestrate something is to throw it out of a window. So what happened was a bunch of, you know, knowing that Ferdinand was trying to take over their land, a bunch of Protestants, Ferdinand obviously being the Holy Roman Empire, uh, Holy Roman Emperor, he's very Catholic, um, knowing that Catholics are trying to take over their land, a bunch of Protestants stormed the castle in Prague uh, that Ferdinand's allies lived in, held them on trial in their own house, 
and then threw them out of a window. <laughs> so, you know, I believe, I believe uh, seven or eight people died because they were falling. They fell seventy feet. But <laughs> two people did not. Two people survived. And the greatest part about it is, I'm just going to ask you, how do you think they survived seventy foot fall? Wow, I honestly like I couldn't even guess. I feel like it's gonna be something really like out of the box. They fell into a giant pile of horse manure. <laughs> I would have never guessed that at all. Neither would so I. Funny. So basically they fell into a giant pile of horse manure. But the weirdest part about this whole story, and I mentioned earlier, it's the second defenestration of Prague, which is a debated thing, because there were actually two defenestrations of Prague before it, even though one is, and I looked this up because I had to, like, make sure. There is a historical consensus that refers to this, uh, that refers to the, sec the second one, the one before the, the actual second one, as the one and a half defenestration of Prague, <laughs> because they're not sure if it was actually officially one. Um, but, like, apparently it's a tradition in Prague to throw people out of windows. And the worst part about that is I didn't realize there is a third defenestration of Prague. In 1948, a man was thrown out of a window. Well, actually, this is very debated. A man fell out of a window, and it is debated till this day whether or not he actually, you know, was thrown or killed himself. But um, Jan Masaryk, uh, I'm probably John, I don't know how to pronounce that. Um, but yeah, he was found dead in a courtyard, falling out, fell out of his window. And to this day, it's, it's kind of disputed as to whether or not it was he was pushed or whether or not he actually jumped. And we might have had a third defenestration of Prague. So if you don't want to get thrown out of a window, don't go to Prague. That's so funny. No, I, I didn't even know what what that word meant before you started talking. I was like, the what of Prague? And now it's just like people throwing each other out of windows, which is really funny to like think about. Like probably like not to the people of Prague. Like you don't want to like yeah. go to Prague and get thrown out of window. But like when you're like an outsider looking in, it's like kind of kind of humorous, kind of a little bit lighthearted when you when you know it's not. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. that, I think the falling, the falling, the being saved by a pile of shit might be the funniest part of that story. <laughs> yeah, no, that's definitely definitely so. I would have never, I would have never guessed that. Um, that's really funny. Um, no, yeah, that's cool. Um, my my event. The reason I asked you to go first is because I think this is a really tough question, and I I don't really. There's a lot of things that like I learn about that like aren't really like, talked about, like. Mm -hmm. I study Native history, and, like, 99% of Native history is not talked about, so I could literally, like, mention any of any of those things. Um, what I mentioned is connected to, to Native American um, groups. It's, like, kind of, like, an intersection with, like, archaeology, um, but we I think we've talked about it on the show before, but um, the, the law that was enacted in 1990, the Native American Graves Protection Repatriation Act, um, it's it's a cultural property law that ensures the protection of Native American, um, not only Native American um, remains, but like sacred um, or culturally significant artifacts as well. 
Um, so I, I think it's really interesting to to learn about NAGPRA, NAGPRA being the acronym for the law, um, because it, it really brings about this this narrative of like who gets to control like and i say that with huge air quotes who gets to control the past and like what what like stories are being told about um whatever whatever group it may be um a lot of cultural property laws are also really tricky um which is always interesting to consider but i i think that it's important to learn about and it's important to consider even though like it's never talked about like the first time that i heard about that cultural property law was last year um and you know the reason that it's really interesting is because we have like all of these different groups that are like in charge of carrying NAGPRA. It's like there's the archaeologists and then there's the the Native American groups and then there's museum curators, there's colleges and universities. There's all of like these players that like have a hand in the law. Um, but the reason that it is such like a contested law, like there are many archaeologists who don't like NAGPRA, there are many um, like scholarly figures that don't like NAGPRA because it, it brings in this debate of who who controls what is said about the past. Um, and it's such like a, I guess like it's such a history nerd thing of me to say because like the past is obviously not something that is like owned or controlled by um, anyone else. But I think that it's it's very pertinent to like anything related to native studies because native peoples have had their their history sort of like wiped out and so this idea that that their artifacts should be returned to them or they should be displayed um with that native um story is very like i'm all for it and i wish that everyone knew about it um so i guess like it's it's a lot i think is cool um solely because it just like brings about those like really tricky questions about um who conveys history um yeah yeah i think that's really interesting and yeah we did we talked about nigra in a previous episode and yeah people really considering how soon like recent it is like i feel like more people definitely should know about it mm -hmm. so uh do you want to say what our second question was yeah so this second question came from um, our good friend noah frank it is about the webster Ashburton Treaty, he just wanted us to talk about it. Um, we, we had to do some research on this one. Um, well, I, I did, I didn't, I've never heard of it prior. Um, talking, speaking of events that we, we think are cool, but are never talked about. Um, <laughs> so this, this treaty essentially worked to settle um, conflicts between the United States Canadian border um, it was between, it, or it occurred during Daniel Webster's first term as Secretary of State, so between 1841 and 1843, um, and it was between the United States and the primary um, foreign policy um, that, you know, involved Great Britain. So it's essentially Britain being pulled into some U.S.-Canadian relations. So the, the sort of not conflict, but it pertains to um, the northeast borders of the United States, and it also relates to the involvement of American citizens in the Canadian Rebellion of 1837, 
and the suppression of the international slave trade. So there's a lot of sort of components to to this treaty. Um, so essentially, on April 4th, 1842, um, the British diplomat Lord Ashburton, he arrived in Washington, and the his first order of business was settling the border between the U.S. and Canada. And so several disputes had come about um, between differing interpretations of the 1783 Treaty of Paris, which is the one that ended the Revolutionary War. Um, these differences led um, New Brunswick officials to arrest some Americans in disputed areas, which led Maine to call out the militia and seize um, the territory in question, which is the event known as the Aroostock War. I think I pronounced that correctly. Um, and so that incident, you know, demonstrated that there was this huge need for a border settlement. Um, so if you like want to like hop on in, talk a little about it too, that's cool. So I'm also looking at the notes we have a little bit because as you know, as you said, uh, this is not very well known by either of us. <laughs> I mean, I, I'd heard of it. Obviously, I've heard of Daniel Webster, who's you know, a pretty well-known uh, politician in, in early America. But um, it's kind of alarming when you look at, you know, the policies here, but it's, it's of course, not surprising in antebellum America. But, um, you know, there is a lot of decision making here that was kind of pulling the wool over the eyes when it comes to slavery. Uh, <clears throat> you have uh, basically he agreed with Ashburton that, um, you know, they, they would they would patrol Africa to make sure that slave traders weren't weren't getting more slaves. Uh, and obviously, this was in 19, this is in 1842, um, and that agreement really wasn't honored until the Civil War. So that means about 20 years of, you know, making an agreement with Britain that had already ended slavery. You know, slavery wasn't a thing in, in Britain at this point. Uh, making an agreement with them and then just kind of not doing it. And then also, uh, <clears throat> my bad, um, and then also, uh, that British, basically Webster did not allow the British to inspect any U.S. ships suspected of carrying slaves. So he basically said, don't worry, we'll patrol them ourselves. We don't have the slave trade. And I think people don't really talk about this as much. Um, Thomas Jefferson ended the slave trade. Um, and that was kind of like his, like, his kind of, you know, claim to fame on that. He was like, oh, I did, the, I did a great job. I ended the slave trade. Um, but he also owned slaves so like he didn't end the ownership of slaves he just kind of was like oh we're not going to get any more which of course you know have you know allowing slaves to have kids and then enslaving their kids is just as effective in getting more slaves you're just not getting them from africa but um yeah i feel like this you know this this treaty in pertaining to the slavery aspect is very 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 uh status quo antebellum America for how they dealt with, you know, kind of creating loopholes to make them seem like they were doing the right thing and then pushing actual pushing actual progression off until, you know, a war happened. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because when we when we talk about, you know, the antebellum period and we talk about um like the events that led up to the Civil War, we we very much keep it US um, central and we don't really consider 
um, how how other how other countries were viewing what was happening in the United States. I mean, yes, there's there's um, Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, and we talked about how like that that made um, many many British people um, upset, and mm -hmm. so you know we talk about a little bit of the the reaction from other countries in that light but it's very interesting to see that other countries were actively trying to to sort of help the us uh, like not i get i don't know like what their their goal is i guess like to abolish slavery but in like address the slavery question in a more indirect way because obviously britain can't you know force the united states to do anything um right. could you know declare war on the united states but that wasn't really um based on based on this information that wasn't really their their intention i just think it's very interesting that they they had been like hey like you should you should be looking at this you should be um you know working towards something better um i think is very interesting because we never really talk about um the antebellum period from other countries perspective and what role they had so that i think that's very interesting yeah i also think it's interesting to say that you know the 1840s were you know a very very i believe the early 1840s actually let me look this up um i believe that was john tyler's presidency um which i'm looking up yes so john tyler became president in 1841 so this was right smack in the middle of having a president who, you know, who appointed this secretary of state, Daniel Webster, uh, having a president that literally joined the Confederacy in the 60s. So, uh, you know, it wasn't exactly, you know, this was very, very clearly not not a step forward for America. Um, I think I think having a border was definitely a step forward. But the, the, the slave policy that we got from this this treaty was not. I also think it's important to understand that, like, this gave us a border for the Northeast, but not for the Northwest. Yes. Which, you know, that's very, very, you know, manifest destiny of the U.S. <laughs> and I wonder if I actually, again, you know, we don't really know that much about this, about just the history of the Canadian border, because, you know, it, it should be studied more, frankly. But, um... I'd be really interested to look up whether or not we ever tried to go north in the West. Because if we hadn't, you know, if this treaty, you know, in the 1840s, you know, the 1890s is when we declared that the frontier was closed. So that leaves us about 50 years of, you know, maybe we get to Montana and say, let's see if we can push this a little bit. Um, but yeah, I, I do not know the history of that. So. I'm gonna go look that up after this episode. So thank you for the question, Noah. This is a really this is a really cool one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it um caused us to think about some other um events that like we wouldn't normally um think about. So that was very very useful. Um, so do you wanna do you wanna address the next one? Sure. So from so the next question we have is uh, another topic question. It's not really a question, but just to talk about a topic. And the topic is Black Wall Street uh, from uh, Marcy Smith Price. And so Black Wall Street, um, yet another, you know, I think, you know, Catherine's, Catherine's question originally really set the tone here because this is another question that deserves to be talked about way more than it actually is talked about. And Black Wall Street, for example, I've heard of Black Wall Street, looked into Black Wall Street, 
Uh, but clearly not nearly enough as I should be, because I frankly didn't know that it actually had a name other than Black Wall Street. Um, it was the Greenwood District of Tulsa, Oklahoma, which was built in 1906. And for 15 years, it was very prosperous as kind of, you know, as a Black Wall Street. It was it was an economic center in Tulsa. Um, the Black people did very well. And unfortunately, you know, it's Oklahoma. If you've ever read Grapes of Wrath, this is, you know, about 10 years out from Grapes of Wrath. So, you know, I, I'm implying everybody has read Grapes of Wrath, but basically it's a, it's a book about people from Oklahoma moving west because they're poor and, you know, poor and white. And obviously, probably got a little bit of that here. You get a lot of lower middle class white people that see a shining black community of, you know, wealthy people. They get really angry and, you know, sure enough, they start burning stuff down. Now, I was looking into this for, you know, what started it, because I, I, you know, I knew about the, the massacre, you know, on May 31st, 1921, the, the start of the massacre, it's a couple days, but I didn't know the instigation, the instigation event, and of course, when I read it, I was not surprised. Obviously, uh, the justification that the white people gave for sacking the community was that a black man had been accused of raping a white woman, and they were justifying it with the defense of the the virtue and, and you know, the defense of a woman, which, unfortunately, is kind of the status quo. You know, it's, it's, we, we kind of see this, you know, obviously Emmett Till, um, even To Kill a Mockingbird, which is, a, you know, work of fiction, when came time for her to come up with what the, you know, event that would drive the plot was. There you go. We got another one. <laughs> um, but, yeah, there's a lot of... Uh, they're not very original when it comes to coming up with excuses to persecute Black people. Uh, and, yeah, so they came up with that. There was a sacking of the community. And... It, they destroyed this entire economy and an entire, you know, community killed 300 people. It's, it's disgusting. And it's even more disgusting that it's not talked about. So you want to, you want to keep going? Like, do you want to keep talking? Yeah. About yeah. This yeah I'll, I'll keep talking about it. Um, so essentially we, we see this, um, tension escalate. And so this led the Tulsa media, which was run by white people, um, to cover the story very favorably in favor of um, the white attackers, which is which is not surprising to say. Um, there there was even a newspaper um, that you quoted here, Sam, mm -hmm. that um, from I think it's Tulsa World, the Tulsa yeah, World newspaper. Tulsa World. Yeah. So the, one of the quotes um, related to to this event um, states that the KKK should restore order in the community, which you, like we were, we were talking about this before the episode started and we're like, wow, like that was publicly said in the newspaper in 1921. Like I, what, what makes it, it's not, it's not surprising. Like, like we, there is very much this narrative that, you know, after, after the civil war racism just sort of like, like disappeared, which is not we we know that not to be um the case. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just so crazy that that this statement was was allowed to be printed and and distributed, and 
I like it's just un it's unfathomable. Like it's not it's not surprising. But like when you see that just like written out in a statement that this group should restore order, like that's terrifying. Like that like the fact that this was able to be printed, um we're at like around that like one hundred year mark. Um, but when you like when you think about history, like we're not that far removed from the 1920s like there are a lot of events that still happened in this time period that are very much talked about today and it is regarded as somewhat recent um history and so like within you know this 100 year period you know we're still seeing we're still seeing this this narrative and how like the media um portrays these sorts of issues and like what stances they they take um very much very much endorsing racism like the media plays such a huge role in that even today so i think like connecting sort of to today um you know it opens a conversation almost for the media to be more aware of of the language that they use um i'm i'm going on a tangent so if you if you want to bring us back around that'd be awesome Sure. Yeah. There's again, you know, as I always say, nothing wrong with going on a tangent. I, I I love the tangents that this show has allowed us to go on. But um, yeah, to to build on what you were saying, uh, what I found in that same article I got the quote from, uh, a lot of the Tulsa newspapers before the riots, uh, downplayed the you know the, the success of Black Wall Street and and the and the Greenwood District, uh, calling it you know uh end town i'm not, not going to say the word obviously calling it you know uh little africa i think was another name for it um and then basically just implying all of the stereotypes you hear about black people these days uh but, but of course a hundred years ago but you hear you know you know basically kind of ronald reagan's 1980s you know super predator idea I guess the super predator was the night. Yeah, it was either the eighties and nineties, but the idea of, you know, you know, black people being, you know, drug using bums, uh, was rampant in the Tulsa news. And then of course, you know, it set up this idea that the white people that were literally destroying the city were not the ones that were guilty. And the newspaper could basically just say, oh, the black people are really the problem here. And the Ku Klux Klan should um, restore order in this community, which obviously would just mean, you know, finishing the job. And uh, yeah, so Black Wall Street, horrible, horrible tragedy. And, you know, I think that the biggest tragedy is, is that it's not talked about. And I think the biggest reason that it's not talked about is that the news coverage was so biased. Like, you know, I feel like if we had news coverage, like, you know, the news coverage we have of Pearl Harbor or, you know, any other event in American history, then probably wouldn't be, wouldn't be as biased and we'd probably see it in every history textbook that you can own. But unfortunately that's not the case. Yeah, I think that that also sort of brings in, again, don't want to get too, too far off track um but it brings in like this this idea that we cherry pick what we what we learn about um especially in american history like things that are talked about are cherry picked um events that we that we learn about are cherry picked um and 
it's so it just it's just a living like example of of whitewashing history like the fact that these events you can go through a K through 12 education you can start college and not know about them is unacceptable um yeah. so i i think that you know this leaves a lot of room for for people to really in the future 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 people who want to go into education um to really like examine what they are what they are learning what they are teaching and um make make their curriculum make their um conversations more more diverse in scope so mm -hmm. yeah th thank you marcy for that question yes thank um, you so so transitioning into this this other question um it's it's not a very like clear-cut transition um but it is our next question it is discussing or it's more topic a lot of these are topics mm -hmm. um so we're going to be discussing um social democracy and democratic socialism and how that looks in the united states um and we're going to like go into sort of the misconceptions about um socialism and what role it sort of plays in our country um so do you want to start us off sure so okay so i'm going to start off kind of on a different direction than i think we were planning on starting off because i want to kind of get us going in the argument we're going to make about this so, the economic policies that we have in this country that are that are ideologies, um, both came from European thinkers. You know, and, and when I say you know both, I'm referring specifically to capitalism and socialism because those are the two that are kind of on the table. They both came originally from European theorists, um, and you can argue, you know, that those two European main European theorists were Karl Marx and Adam Smith. And both of these men, you know, were radically on the ends of, of, of either side. You know, Adam Smith believed in laissez-faire capitalism, and he believed, you know, in the invisible hand was basically, you know, the, you know, the justification for all winner-take-all society, and that, you know, no matter how free the markets were and how poor the people were, that if they, you know, if if the rich got richer, then they would bring the poor up. And it was, you know, Adam Smith was basically the first Ronald Reagan. <laughs> but obviously that's a gross simplification. So please don't quote me on that. But basically, you know what I mean. He was the trickle-down economics before trickle-down economics was cool. But then you have Karl Marx on the other side who, you know, believed in the complete erosion of classes, believed, you know, there should be no government and believe that the people should rule themselves and own their own property together and all this kind of stuff. And neither side of what we see in U.S. policy resembles what either of them believed in. The capitalism that you see today in the U.S. is not what Adam Smith wanted. The socialism that we see in the U.S. is certainly not what, what you know, Marxist, what Marx believed communism to be. And the communism we saw in the Soviet Union was not what we what Marx wanted to see. So socialism, you know, capitalism has more of a direct tie to the to the to the Adam Smiths of the world, but socialism has has a very, very, you know, jagged path to where it is now. And it is a very well thought out 
plan, in my opinion. I, I don't fully agree with it, but I think it has it has a lot of deliberation and a lot of uh, change behind it that brings us to today. And I think it's still very much a work in progress, just as capitalism is, but I think there's more of a work in progress on the socialist end. So to go into that after that little rant, um, the definition of social democracy is a political, social, and economic philosophy within socialism that supports political and economic democracy. So it's basically saying, and, and democratic socialist, socialism is basically something that goes along with that, where it is very much a socialist ideas inside a capitalist democratic system. So do you want to kind of build on that? Yeah, yeah. So... I, I looked on um, the Democratic Socialism of America website that, that we have um, available to us. And essentially, democratic socialists believe that both the economy and society should be run democratically, but for the purpose to meet public, meet, to meet public needs, not for, for few, not for like whatever that top 1%, that very small percentage at the top, not for that small percentage of the top to make profit. Um, mm -hmm. We very much see today that a lot of our affairs are run by these huge corporations. Amazon is like taking over the, taking over the country, um, taking over, um, you know, a lot of our, you know, shopping needs, for instance. Um, so we see a lot of these, you know, monopoly organizations everywhere um, throughout our, our country, throughout our society. Um, and so democratic socialists really want to like tackle that idea that public needs should be met first, not, you know, satisfying that, that um, profit that the top certain percentage of society makes. Um, and so it also addresses this idea that democracy and socialism go hand in hand and what what this what this um source you know talks about which i think is really interesting and also very true is that all over the world wherever wherever this idea of democracy has taken root um a vision of socialism has also taken root except for the united states um yeah. and so because of this um, false ideas, as Sam sort of alluded to, false ideas about socialism have developed in the United States. Um, and so we will get into like the origins of where those like false ideas have um, have come in come into um, fruition or have come to be. Um, and so along like that sort of same token as before, democratic socialism um, socialists do not want to create um, an all-powerful government bureaucracy. They are not in favor of corporate bureaucracies um, to control society. And But essentially, they believe that social and economic decisions should be made by people whom they most affect, which is which makes sense when you when you think about it. Um, and so very much they favor decentralization of of goods, decentralization of the economy. Um, making it so that needs are met in a more widespread manner instead of this disparity, this inequity that we see where this this small percentage of people at the top have everything. And then a lot of middle America has, you know, they, they have opportunities, but, you know, say they have like a couple jobs and that's how they maintain, you know, their, you know, we, we just see this, this inequity in, in the way that, um, you know, capitalism is. 
Um, so we can now sort of talk about where um, where this false idea um, of socialism has come from. And I honestly, like we we know, like when we talk about socialism, there's always that conversation that um, that people who are like socialists have communist ideals. And I, I see both of these terms like used interchangeably and it's very it's very annoying to mm-hmm. hear because these these two, we're talking about two separate political like ideologies we're talking about two separate um movements and so essentially what we see is quote like heavy air quotes we see radical movements just simply dismissed as being communist yeah. and and for 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 me, I think that that comes from that obviously comes from the Cold War era and this huge you know the Red Scare and this this huge fear of you know communism and like the, the the domino theory if like one country falls to communism others will follow and you know this idea that communism is the you know complete opposite of democracy and they're like you know opposing forces and all of that so. I think that I think that this misconception like makes people scared of socialism, even though they're two vastly different things. Um, if you look at, you know, a political spectrum um, or, you know, where both places fall, we see that that socialism is not the radical, radical left. You know, communism takes that spot as like the most radical left you can go. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we, you know, we see socialism sort of like near it, but not, not not to that same extreme. So, you know, I think that it's something that that people who favor, um, you know, capitalist ideals, like they very much have weaponized socialism and have made other, um, made other more conservative or capitalist um, thinkers to to sort of turn against it when the u.s doesn't even have a concrete view of what socialism is to begin with um so yeah yeah i also think that you know when when we talk about communism even you know the the word communism invokes a a very very specific message in in this country that has absolutely nothing to do with communism and I think that's another problem. But, you know, this is this isn't the issue of, of people disliking socialism is so deep because we think about, you know, communism. We think about like McCarthy and we think about, you know, Joe McCarthy, you know, going after Hollywood and going after politicians for being communists. And he's not attacking the ideology. He's attacking Russia. He is saying that these people are are, are loyal to Russia. And what Russia had, by definition, if you read the Communist Manifesto, which I highly recommend because it's only like 20 pages, it's really short. You read the Communist Manifesto. There is no leader (laughs) in communism. So the fact that a, a figure such as Stalin or Khrushchev or Brezhnev would exist means that it's not a communist society. 
So the fact that, you know, we would have this hatred for communism, like it's not the ideology. There's nothing about the ideology there that is that is actually anti 20th century American. But unfortunately, that is kind of how we view communism and and Marxist communism, except on very, very small scales, has never actually succeeded in history. It's never really had a shot, but also, you know, no large scale country is going to really give it a shot. Socialism, on the other hand, is, you know, used throughout the world, including the US. Like, I think that's another thing, you know, socialism is a buzzword because I think a lot of people, you know, forget that socialism was the word used by, and, you know, you know, we, we talk about socialism is afraid, you know, it, when people hear about they hear communism, but socialism itself is a word that has been weaponized in the fact that, you know, national socialists, that was the name of the Nazi party. The United Soviet Socialist Republics was the name of the USSR or the CCCP translation. Um, so the word socialism has been used by dictators for over a hundred years. The problem is, was Hitler a socialist? No. Was Stalin a socialist? No. Did they use the word? A hundred percent, because they were lying about it. <laughs> uh, you know, so I think when people look for their hatred and they, and they, they actually think about why they despise a term, they have to think about why they're despising a term. Is it the ideology itself or is it the person that the idea that the word makes them think about? So should we talk a little bit about like modern democratic socialism and like what it, what's going on in the US right now, now that we've kind of justified like why it should be given a chance? Yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, the most modern figure in the US that that we that we've seen come you know really into the the political um climate in the past few years is is our man bernie sanders um we we see that his his ideals push for a more um a distribution of resources that is more um equitable in the sense that it is more wide wide um or more broad in scope we we know that medicare for all um really looks to achieve um, access to healthcare in a more widespread manner. Um, we he, the, like Medicare for all very, very much um, addresses the um, inequities in cost that that have um, been a result of the you know sort of policies and the sort of prices that have been set by insurance companies. Um, a lot of Bernie Sanders' arguments have been about the you know the top one percent and the the power that these huge corporations have um have gained in the u.s and the the sort of argument should be or is that that these that these organizations that these um you know monopolies should not should not exist um in in this country but they do and that was sort of his his platform was was to sort of not not control but but regulate the where where resources are going like like for me i don't i don't know um if you if you think the same way sam but like part like a huge part of modern socialism for me is where resources are going like mm -hmm. where resources are going which which people have access to them um and 
you know, it very much is this idea of equity, which is very much in in the in the political climate right now. Uh, we see, you know, many different groups, um, in, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and, you know, people, um, people believing that that everyone should have equitable, um, you know, access to life resources like that. That is very much um I believe connected to socialism, connected to this idea that everyone should have um, access to these necessary um, resources. And you know, within that, we we see that um, you know another reason I think that it's come so to the forefront is because the pandemic, because COVID nineteen, has exacerbated the disparities that we see within access to healthcare, within access to um, those necessary um, resources. So that's kind of where I sort of see um, the conversation going. I think that socialism would be, you know, much, it would serve much better in a way to like sort of deconstruct this false narrative. It's really identify where the resources are coming from and where the resources are going. Um, that's sort of where I see the future of having these conversations because that's sort of the core root of it. Where, where are these resources coming from? Where are they going? And like, and is it an equitable process? Um, that's sort of how I view it. I, I totally agree with that. Uh, but yeah, so I, you know, I think <clears throat> it's really, it's, we think it's really important that, you know, we kind of zero in on, on what socialism actually means. And I think, you know, we're we're getting a real, you know, I think we're I think we're making progress. I, I don't really know exactly how to say that, but I think the conversation is definitely being made more honestly instead of just, you know, I mean, obviously not in the Fox News areas of the world, but I think people are making that making a more, you know, uh, what's what's a good word for it? Making a more substantive discussion on on what can actually be done and implemented. So now it's time to get into our last question. Um, and very grateful this is for this question because this is going to be a really fun one from previous guest Kate Stiles, uh, who was on a few episodes ago. Um, when did you all realize that America has a horrifying, bloody history? And I'm going to send this to you first. Okay. Um, so. I, you know, very much I could pinpoint this this one moment um, that that I, you know, have, like, I will pinpoint the one moment that I was really like, wow, like my mind was blown, and this this was wow, America really sucks. Um, not in like an overall sense, like, well, yes, in an overall sense, because you know we've done a lot of things in in our history that are, you know just terrifying to to many different um groups and you know there i would you know throughout the years i would have like a little like light bulb like hey that's that's not cool of america but like it wasn't like slapped in my face um until until eighth grade um in eighth grade we were given the opportunity to well we had to do a research paper that was like a collaboration between social studies and language arts and we were given we were able to choose our topic and um, we were given a list of topics to choose from a lot of people did um, you know, spies in the Civil War um, was one popular topic. Um, women's rights was another popular topic. Um, the Harlem Renaissance was another popular one. 
And then the one that I did that I was probably one of the only people in, you know, eighth grade to do this was I researched um, the Trail of Tears and Indian removal, which is very much, you know, the start of my interest in Native studies, because I remember, I remember sitting in this classroom doing my research paper and everyone was doing spies in the civil war and everyone was doing women's rights and like i'm all for women's rights like i'm a woman like i'm not gonna say there's nothing wrong about learning there's nothing wrong about learning about women and women's rights there's nothing wrong about learning about spies in the civil war or you know even the harlem renaissance like those are all very much needed you know discussions to be had you know but i was like the only person in the room who who chose who chose this topic and the the thing about it that i think is very you know shocking we sort of alluded to this in our episode with kate um i sort of talk about how you know my experience with or my exposure to native studies was very much like there was some you know white there was some whitewashed stereotypical native studies in in elementary school but this paper this optional paper that not everyone had to pick the topic that I did was my main exposure to Native studies. So if I hadn't like picked that topic, like, I would have not learned about Native studies like virtually at all um, in my K-12 experience. And so, you know, we've talked, I don't know if we've talked about the Trail Tears on this podcast before, um, but the the forced removal of the Cherokee from Georgia um, to Oklahoma by by Andrew Jackson um, you know, in 1838, this, this, this event is, is so, I don't know, it just made me open my eyes and be like, wow, America really treated, you know, Native Americans like trash. Like, the government just treated them repeatedly like trash. They broke all of these treaties, and my mind was just blown. Like, it just, because for me, that was the first time that I really learned about an event, like, a substantial event in Native history. And I was like, wow, like, the U.S. kind of sucks. And, like, by kind of, it does. Um, And so that sort of was where, like, my turning point was. I was like, wow, I learned about this, but if I hadn't, if I hadn't chosen that topic, I would have never learned about it. And I would have never you know, had that sort of motivation to, like, learn about um, Native, you know, peoples and Native history. I I very much think that it is a needed part of curriculum, but it just is never there. Or it's there and it's optional, and no one picks it because it's never talked about and they don't want to put in the extra work. Um, So, yeah, that was the the moment where I was like, you know, America's very, very bloody. Um, I obviously knew about the the Civil War and I knew about slavery and like I recognized that America was bloody because of that. Um, you know, or obviously around that same time. But for me, I was like, wow, so America's not only bloody because of slavery, but it's bloody because of <laughs> all of the Native Americans that they've forced like forcibly removed from land. It's, you know, all of these um you know, atrocious events. And when you think about Native peoples and you think about the percentage of Native peoples that are left today, like they they literally in the in the um, beginning of the 20th century, we see um, people looking for Native artifacts because they're afraid that the Native, like Native peoples in general are just going to die off. Like that is like, there's just such a bloody history around it that is just never talked about, which we alluded to in our last episode 
um, about about Thanksgiving and the in the, the the false narrative of that. Um, so again, like I knew that America had a horrifying bloody history from like the 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 slavery standpoint, from the racism um, standpoint toward toward black people. But that was the first time my eyes were open. I'm like, oh, America is multifaceted, horrifying, horrifying and bloody, and it's not talked about like um, because like. Again, like I'll just end by saying, when you look at groups in in America that are talked about, and you look at groups who are not talked about, Native peoples are never talked about. So their their story is very much repeatedly erased. Um, and and the, like I guess the most horrifying part is that it's allowed to be erased. Like it's allowed to be for the most part erased. Um, so that that was kind of my op- eye opening moment. Um, and that's why I'm studying Native Studies today. Um, it's very much, I, re- I said that paper, I was like, wow, no one's learning about this. I'm going to learn about it. And then I'm going to teach about it. <laughs> so, yeah. Yes. So mine is a lot more like vague because I, I personally, like I, I've been struggling to kind of pinpoint a moment because I think it's definitely been more of a spectrum for me. Uh, but I think a lot of, a lot of the different, you know, kind of moments in my life have been kind of epiphanistic in the fact that I just like, I'm slowly getting surprised more and more and more and more. And at this point, it's just dull. Like at this point, it's just like, oh, like, of course we did that. We're the U.S. But, (laughs) um, one moment I can specifically pinpoint was in my sophomore year, having a conversation with a friend and at this point you know i'd been through a school system that had taught me to idolize american historical figures you know a bunch of american historical figures you know the the george washington's and the abraham lincoln's and you know even like you know some weird ones like thomas edison who gets way too much credit um but like you know these figures who are you know you read a children's biography and it's just like positive fact positive fact like we're never talking about what happened the the negative stuff but um uh and this conversation was basically about lincoln and and up until this point you know abraham lincoln freed the slaves it was this you know this huge thing and i had never even bothered to, to think about that you know this is this was kind of the beginning of my my turn to wanting to be more you know history oriented because yeah i knew I, I studied you know history in quotes of you know who the presidents were and, and you know how the country came together and stuff but until this point i had never really thought critically about history and i think once you start unpacking who people were in history then you start to realize how bad it can get. Like, you know, Abe Lincoln very, very clearly, you know, it was not his first priority. And then you look at, you know, Thomas Jefferson, as I mentioned earlier in this episode, was a figure who, you know, if you read certain documents, was all about freeing the slaves and married a slave and was pro, you know, you know, all this kind of stuff. But like, if you actually read between the lines, which isn't even reading between the lines, it shouldn't be reading between the lines. It should be very much forefront. He owned thousands of slaves. He deliberately took the slavery line out of uh, the document that he wrote, Declaration of Independence. Um, And, you know, we really, really, really like to celebrate the wins. 
And I think that's that's something that I keep learning where, you know, even even this year or last year in my Latin American history class, uh, freshman year of college, you know, we we talk about, you know, Cuba, for example, where, you know, the, the first time we talk about Cuba in American history, you know, high school American history is the Kennedy administration. We don't talk about what happened before the Kennedy administration. You know, we talk about Bay of Pigs. We talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis, but we don't talk about the dictator that we put there. We don't talk about the well, we talked about the Pratt Amendment. We talk about the Pratt Amendment, uh, the Platt Amendment, very, very briefly. Platt Amendment, you know, was basically us just saying, "Okay, Cuba, you're, you know, our little, our little brother." But <laughs> we don't talk about the fact that, you know. We first were pro Castro, then we were against Castro because Castro was and to go back cast to go back to the previous conversation. Castro was ooh communist, um, <laughs> but you know we we really like to celebrate the the pro America moments. And the more pro America moments that I learn the truth about, the more I realize how much of a problem the way we talk about history is. So I know that's definitely a, a total kind of U-turn way to describe the answer to answer this question, but yeah, I think I think that Lincoln conversation really like shook me, and I'm like, you know, kind of set on the path that I'm I am now more because of it. Yeah, I I definitely think that you know, a large, you know, if you're a history student, um, if you happen to be a history student watching our um podcast, um. You, you will be all too familiar with this with this concept that that history is the most valuable when it is discussed via um or in the context of the culture that it affects um when because if it's not this is where a lot of the stereotypes arise mm -hmm. um and so again like it sort of returns to that question you know coming full circle what i was talking about in the beginning of the episode with nagpra this discussion about who who controls narrative? Um, I think that you know we we know this to be true that a lot of history is written and discussed by the victors or the winners of whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. I think that we are now very much, especially given our current political climate, in a in a transition point. I think that a lot of conversations are starting to happen where history is discussed through you know not the eyes of the colonizer. But the but the people who were colonized, like I, I definitely think that there's an opening for history to be rediscussed and reimagined. But the it it has to start with the way we structure like education, which is such a huge conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, but again, like sort of kind of going back to you know our episode with Kate, this is you know sort of Kate's you know question that she brought to us. Mm -hmm. Um. His, there's so much room for for history to grow as an important topic in the education system instead of viewing history as like a benchmark to learn about different facts like we should take it as an opportunity to not only like learn about um you know the general history of our of our nation and other nations but to take it as an opportunity to to reimagine and sort of restructure the discussion um to 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 combat 
stereotypes that show up in modern society that's what history does that's what history is supposed to do mm-hmm. not endorse stereotypes but but sort of work to to combat them um so very very good question very interesting um yeah i thought you were gonna say something like much younger i thought you were gonna say like when i was in fourth grade i <laughs> you know learned about this this and this so i was shocked when you said 10th um yeah. I wish okay. I could say fourth grade, but like you know, in fourth grade I was very blind. You know, I, we we did a we did a project on the explorers, and we did I actually in fourth in fifth grade did a project on Stonewall Jackson as, as an American an American historical figure who you know you know anything about Stonewall Jackson was a Confederate general who was a traitor to this country. Uh, and there's no other way to say that. <laughs> but um. To go back to what you were saying about history being written by the colonized as opposed to the colonizer, you know, it's just so frustrating that we have to fight for this, that we have to fight for that to be the case. Because, like, I know this is another, you know, grossly simplified analogy, but someone breaks into your house tomorrow. Are they going to ask the robber for the details of what happened, or are they going to ask the victim of the house robbery for the de- the details of what happened? Like, they're not going to be like, oh, yes, Mr. Criminal, please tell us everything that happened. And, he, and then he'll just say, oh, I didn't break in. I was, you know, you know, at Starbucks down the street. And then they're going to, like, take that as evidence and say, we don't need to talk to the victim. Like, that just wouldn't happen. <laughs> But of course, in more, you know, broad matters that, you know, concern millions of people, we don't need that same diligence. We can just, you know, ask the robber what happened and then, you know, take him at his word. (laughs) Yeah, I I think that it's very, it's very much sad that, that people look at America as a beacon and place of freedom. I think that we we have you know we we have tried we've tried Mm -hmm. to enable you know these sort of ideals but like when you think about it like america is created and is still designed um for for white for the white man for white people in general um and any other any other group is just really much short short changed or very much widely ignored um and it's, you know, it's, I would like to see, I would like to see people hold America accountable for the shit that they've done. But, you know, when you look at, when you look all over the world, all of these other countries have, have shit that they've done as well that isn't good, you know? So history is just kind of pessimistic, but it is what it is. You can't really, like, look at it or write it any other way. I mean, or you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't sugarcoat it and you shouldn't try to make it you know, overly positive when that's not, you know, the reality. Um, Yeah. Well, uh, this is a great episode. I really like this. So um, I really like, I really like this, you know, this format of asking questions. So I'm thinking, and this is, you know, totally completely off the cuff. um, I'm thinking that maybe, you know, in, in, in future episodes, maybe starting season three, how would you feel about um, doing like a uh, you know one question at the end of the episode kind of thing? I feel like that would be kind of cool. Yeah, no, I really I really like these sorts of questions. I think that it's you know sometimes we get a little um, you know 
locked in structure and like we we get locked in like the facts and like sometimes we forget to have this like free-flowing conversation i think questions like this really help um very interesting we talked about a lot of things today so so thank you all for submitting questions um that was very interesting and very helpful for us yeah thank you and to all the people our age that are listening because i know that's the vast majority of of our demographic good luck with finals uh you know we're Probably not going to be back next week for one uh, mid reading week, but we might be. Uh, actually, it's the reading week this week, so another one mid finals week next week might not happen. Uh, this is coming out on Wednesday, so uh, if you guys are looking for something to do uh, in between finals study sessions, we would love <laughs> we'd love for you to check this out. Well, I mean, if you if you're here, you probably already did, but um, yeah, we will probably not be back next week, but we will be back soon after that. So, yeah, I uh, hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Good luck with finals. If you are not currently a college student, good luck with whatever is going on in your life. And, yeah.